the hunt for alien worlds and planets like our own. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Scientists are on the hunt for exoplanets, planets that exist outside our solar system. So far, they've found thousands of planets orbiting other stars and some that might be like our own world. That means they could have all the prerequisites to life as we know it here on Earth. We'll talk with two scientists leading the hunt for these alien worlds. First, we'll speak with MIT's Dr. George Ricker. He's a research scientist and the principal investigator for NASA's TESS mission, a space-based telescope tasked with identifying possible planets around distant stars. The telescope completed its primary mission after launching from Cape Canaveral back in 2018. Now it's entering its extended mission, aimed to catalog even more exoplanet candidates. We'll speak with Ricker about the mission and the findings so far. Then, Are We There Yet's Kirk Churchill speaks with UCF scientist Dr. Theodore Carlidi about TRAPPIST-1, a system some 39 light years away that looks similar to our own solar system. Could that mean these planets could support life? The hunt for exoplanets and alien worlds. That's just ahead on Are We There Yet here on WMFE, America's space station. NASA's TESS telescope is rather small. It's only about the size of a golf cart, but it's making big discoveries. Since its launch on SpaceX's Falcon 9 back in 2018, it has identified thousands of possible exoplanets. Its cameras focus on distant stars and measure a dip in the light when a planet passes in front of it. It's called the transiting method, and scientists have uncovered thousands of exoplanet candidates this way. MIT's Dr. George Rickert leads the TESS mission and joins us now to talk about the mission's next phase— but first, he looks back at the primary test campaign. Well, it went it went extremely well. We actually were pleasantly surprised at how sensitive the cameras were, how well the satellite uh, itself behaved. We were uh, expecting to be able to see variations in light that were in the range of maybe 40 or 50 parts per million. And in reality, the, the sensitivity to small changes in light from stars or the effects of the planets transiting uh, their host stars were about, it was about five times better than that. And to give you an idea of what that means, if a planet the size of our Earth uh, um, transits across or casts a shadow on the sun, that uh, diminution in brightness that you get from the sun is about 85 parts per million. So TESS is able to look at, um, at effects like that, that would be that would correspond to very small planets. In fact, uh, TESS could actually uh, detect a planet only the size of, of the moon transiting oh, wow. across far the size of our sun. So we 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 made these uh, measurements so that we actually covered the southern hemisphere of the sky in the first year and the northern hemisphere in the second year. And altogether, we um, disco- we discovered more than two thousand. Um, new planet candidates that have that have uh, subsequently been studied to establish what their masses were. These range all the way from planets the size of Jupiter to planets that are quite a bit smaller than the Earth, and uh, they have orbital periods that range from a few days for the planets that are very close to their host star to periods of several months among the ones that we saw. 
And uh, we're really pleased about the tremendous number that we were able to find and also the quality. And going into the, the new uh, extended mission that we're in now, we're able to increase that number by uh, of 2,000, probably by as much as a factor of 10, because oh, we're wow. going to be looking at about 50, 50 million uh, stars over the next uh, two years, uh, because since the instruments have been are so stable, as, as I mentioned before, that means that we can actually um, uh, look for um, many smaller planets than we thought was possible. And then the other thing that we're actually finding in tests is that, as you might um, uh, expect from our solar system, where, where there are eight planets, um, there are a lot of multi-planet systems that we're finding. Uh, a lot of these are kind of odd. I mean, in our, in our solar system, for example, you've got the four inner planets, um, uh, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars that are small and rocky. And then there's uh, gaseous planets um, in the outer solar system, you know, Jupiter, Saturn, Neptune, and Uranus. Uh, well, the curious thing about many of the systems that we're finding with TESS is they're sort of turned upside down. That is, the big planets are on the inside of the of theirs of the system, and then the um, rocky planets are on the outside. Um, and some of them actually are very are packing very closely to their host star, and some are spread further apart. But it's it's a very it's a very uh, interesting uh, uh, discovery that these systems uh, are so different from from uh, what uh, we see in our own solar system. 50 million stars in this next campaign. That seems like a huge amount of data. How do you sift through all this stuff? Does someone actually have to look at all of these light readings and see where the dips are on, on, on all of these observations on all these different stars? How do you actually parse through all this data? Well, it's, it's, quite, a, it's quite a challenge. And uh, we, you know, we, we certainly couldn't do it all uh, manually uh, and by eye. So it's a combination of several things. Uh, some of the, the signatures for the, uh, the dips associated with the planets uh, are recognizable uh, by um, uh, special computer uh, uh, systems that we've assembled and special programs. And we're also uh, starting to use um, uh, AI and machine learning to pick up some of these uh, signals. Uh, so it's a combination of both things. The quantity of data is really enormous because, you know, the number that I mentioned before, 100 megabits per second, is what we get from the um, uh, from from the satellite when it uh, uh, passes close enough to the Earth to do a uh, a data downlink uh, using NASA's Deep Space Network, and uh, we have to scramble to actually get the data uh, together into a form that we can actually analyze and then uh, calibrate it, and then go through the process of sifting the data, and then look for the candidates that uh, look promising and, uh, and carry out measurements uh, on the ground, from ground-based systems that will allow us to enable their, uh, to find their masses. And with, and in so doing, we've actually been able to, um, Bring the uh, to bring together a team of about 500 uh, astronomers on the, um, you know that are spread at at, at uh, observatories around the world. There's more than 
more than 100 um, observatories that are involved in this effort. And so everyone has really been doing a, doing a great job uh, to uh, harvest this, uh, this data um, and to try to do, real, it's really like, you could think of it as kind of a census. And uh, we, we had a, uh, so just, just like the US census, uh, there's a finite period of time that we have to go through the data and sift through it and figure out what type of planets are, are uh, orbiting around which types of stars. And then some observatories are better at, at uh, looking at large planets and some are better at looking at small planets. And so there's a lot of coordination in the follow-up work that we've had to do um, along those lines. So it's been a, it's been an, a hectic time. Uh, but it's been an exciting time and everyone who's been involved in it is just really uh, anxious if we can um, keep going um, further and further as we as we go along. And then the other thing, and this is a, this is something else that's happened in the mission that we've really been uh, excited about going forward is that we, we, we're, not, we're discovering a lot of exoplanets, but we're also finding a lot of other things in the, in the sky that sort of go bump in the night. Uh, the, for example, we've discovered um, a, a uh, one one example, and that, well, now now there's actually two of things that are called tidal disruption events, and these are this is a um, something that happens well outside of our galaxy. In fact, it actually uh, the, the the one that we saw actually occurred in a place in the sky that we were. Uh, staring at for about seven months, and there was not much going on in terms of when we were certainly discovering exoplanets there. But what we actually saw was um, there was a, um, a um, an area in a relatively inconspicuous galaxy that just brightened up um, uh, all of a sudden, and over a period of a day, um, it it, uh, it brightened by more than a factor a of a thousand. And um, in so doing, Sorry. one of the things, one of the things that we were able to establish was that this was um, that that this particular um, uh, galaxy had a supermassive black hole that was uh, had a mass, oh maybe between a hundred million and a billion times that of of our sun in its core, and uh, the um, the behavior that we actually saw with with Tess was a star that unfortunately got too close to that black hole and it was actually shredded and it was just ripped apart in its entirely and then spread as uh, hot gas that was emitting um, x-rays and light and a whole range of, um, of, of um, electromagnetic radiation uh, over the time that we were looking at it. And this was the first time that astronomers had actually been able to um, to, to see the, uh, the early hours of an event like that. And then after we, sent, we were able to um, transmit this information to other observers, there were lots of, uh, uh, of other satellites that actually um, uh, got to, uh, uh, to, the, to the object while it was still bright enough. In fact, one of the, there was an early um, uh, uh, ground-based observatory that saw the the um, uh, the object brighter when it was when it was um, uh, a few days. It was about a week or so after it went off, and then we looked back in the test data and actually saw the turn on. So it was 
so in that sense, TESS was actually keeping a record of everything that, that it saw. And that meant that um, other observers could, could, in a sense, go back and look at, at these types of unknown events and see if there's a correlation with what TESS is actually seeing. And this has happened for um, other events, too, other, the super, supernovae, which are um, uh, objects that are also extragalactic, uh, are being detected by tests at the rate of about 100 per year. And these are particularly bright ones, and they're the ones that astronomers can, can study the best. As you mentioned, the test is now in its extended mission. The next phase of the mission will be more community-focused. What does that mean? What, it, what we've uh, been able to do with TESS, uh, and this has made our jobs harder, but on the other hand, it's been very rewarding. Uh, NASA has actually instituted what's called a guest investigator program. And this is a, um, uh, a, uh, an arrangement whereby people can actually propose objects or uh, candidates that TESS can uh, potentially look at. And then, they, then uh, NASA, for the investigators, will actually provide funding for them to take the test data that comes in. Uh, these are people who are not part of the original team and then uh, fund their, their uh, analyses and interpretation of test data. And that program now is, uh, is uh, fully underway. And the thing that's unusual about the way that TESS is operating is that in the extended mission, 100% of the data uh, is actually based on targets that is that are presented by the community, and then the ones that have, of objects that have been previously discovered uh, will continue to be looked at uh, in uh, preparation for the launch of the of the James Webb Space Telescope, which is coming up uh, hopefully toward the end of this year. So there's a lot of prep preparatory work that's that's part of that. So basically, you know, we had this phrase that we used uh, in the early days of uh, tests when we were uh, making the arrangements with NASA to have the mission approved, is we, we referred to tests as the people's telescope. And that's, it's really turned out to be that way because there's basically, there's so much data that TESS produces that literally thousands of astronomers, and for that matter, high school students, citizen scientists, amateur astronomers, all there are just lots and lots of people that are going to the test uh, data archive and uh, looking at the images and looking at the light curves. Many people, for example, who are interested in variable stars, there's, a, there's been a long tradition in astronomy uh, for amateurs to uh, look at, to observe and, and to look and interpret the light changes that are occur in stars that are variable on time scales of, um, of hours, days, weeks, whatever. And TESS is unique in that it provides uh, data for that in a way that's not interrupted by bad weather or, or, or day-night cycles or whatever. And there's an, uh, there's an enormous amount of basic new uh, astrophysical information that's being gleaned from these observations that are that, that um, many of the of the community astronomers are making available as well, and so and this also means that uh, it isn't that TESS is doing everything. TESS TESS sometimes uh, is is actually provide is is providing the identification of a unique new system, and then even when it moves on in the sky uh, to look at other 
uh, other parts of the sky as the year goes on. Um, many, many ground-based astronomers, for example, can continue to follow up these objects both then and also in, uh, in future years. Fascinating stuff. Well, we've been speaking with George Ricker. He's a senior research scientist at MIT and the principal investigator for NASA's TESS mission. Uh, Dr. Ricker, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you very much. It's, it's nice to uh, speak with you again, Brenda. There is a lot more to that conversation. Visit wmfe.org slash space for the full interview. Still to come, could a star system nearly 40 light years away have planets like our own Earth? And could it support life? Are we there yet? Is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet on WMFE, America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. 39 million light years away, a system of seven rocky worlds orbit a faint star called TRAPPIST-1. Using a variety of space telescopes to observe the system, scientists think that these planets might have an atmosphere closely resembling our own which makes this an intriguing finding in the search for life on other worlds. To talk more about the TRAPPIST-1 star system, Are We There Yet's Kirk Churchill spoke with UCF scientist Dr. Theodora Carlidi about what we know about the star system and its unique Earth-like qualities. And a note for our listeners, UCF is a financial supporter of this show. Dr. Carlidi, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thanks for having me. The TRAPPIST system is pretty far away from Earth, almost 40 light years away. And with the system so far away, how do we end up discovering it in the first place? So the system was first observed with a ground-based telescope, uh, TRAPPIST. That's why it's also named TRAPPIST-1 in Chile. And uh, initially, we knew of three planets uh, around uh, the TRAPPIST-1 star. And then the unfortunately by now dead Spitzer Space Telescope went back and observed it again and found that we actually had seven planets there, which made it really exciting. And the way we discover these planets is by just continuously staring at stars and waiting to see if an eclipse happens. The idea is really similar to kind of what happens when we have a sun eclipse. Um, You probably have experienced one yourself, right? Um, In our case, the moon goes in between the sun and the earth and blocks the sun. Uh, It just so happens by a fluke of nature that the moon is just big enough and just at the right distance that it can sometimes completely cover uh, the sun disk. Uh, But in some cases, it's just not at the right geometry and just further away. So you just get part of the sun discovered and then you kind of lose part of the sunlight, but just not all of it. And that's really what we uh, see for uh, planets around other stars, like the TRAPPIST-1 system, uh, because they're uh, really small in comparison to their parent star. Uh, Even though TRAPPIST-1 is a small star, uh, they just pass in front of it and we see some light missing uh, suddenly from the star. And by keep on observing, we see that there is actually a repetitiveness in the light that we're missing. So we know uh, there's a planet in orbit around it. um, And by seeing more of these dips, we can find that there's more planets out there. 
being so far away and looking at these observations, how do we know there's a potential for water on the surface of some of these planets? And what does that mean in terms of possibility of life on Trappist or even other worlds outside of our own? So uh, there's a couple of things uh, that are involved when we uh, talk about the potential of water. Uh, so the first thing is we're looking at the uh, planet and uh, trying to figure out if it's at the right distance from the parent star. Uh, not too cold, so not too far away, not too hot, so not too close by, uh, so that liquid water can actually exist on the surface. Uh, this is what we call the habitable, or sometimes you uh, may hear it as a Goldilocks zone. Um, and uh, similarly, uh, basically to uh, kind of what you would have, say, being around a fire pit, right? If you're too close to a fire pit and a cold night, you probably feel too hot. Uh, so uh, you want to go further out to be pleasant, and that's what happens with the planet. It just needs to be far out enough to be pleasant enough on the surface for liquid water there. Uh, for uh, Trappist, uh, we uh, have three planets uh, from the seven that we think are in about the right distance for liquid water to be on the surface. Um, however, something to keep in mind is that just the right distance is not enough. We also need to have a good atmosphere uh, around the planet. Um, and that is where big telescopes like the Hubble or the hopefully soon to be launched James Webb Space Telescope come in action. And uh, what uh, we're doing with these telescopes is that we are looking at these planets and try to figure out if there is an atmosphere to start with. And if so, can we see uh, the absorption signatures from uh, or emission uh, signatures from the right elements like, say, water uh, in the atmosphere, uh, oxygen, uh, maybe some ozone, all things that actually are really important for life as we know it to exist there. So as far as the actual maybe surface of the planet itself, or surface of the planets and, the, and the, those within the system, um, based off of the current predictions, do we have a general idea of what the surface of some of these planets look like besides the potential for holding water? Uh, so we know based on some of the observations we have so far that uh, most of them are probably rocky in composition. Um, and that is true for pretty much all of the planets in that system. Uh, unlike our solar system, where we have the four rocky planets inwards and the four gaseous planets outside, uh, that system is really compact and also really uh, rocky, it seems. Uh, but uh, in order to figure out, uh, we, ha we have some ideas that probably uh, there could be water on the surfaces, but um, in order to figure that out, we're going to need the next generations of telescopes, uh, James Webb, and even further in the future uh, to really be able to map the surfaces eventually. Uh, I just want to mention that I think one of the most interesting thing for the trapeze systems, uh, in my perspective, is probably not uh, how the surfaces really look like, uh, but the fact that if you were actually there, and you would look up in the night sky, uh, you would be able to see a lot of the neighboring planets because they're just so close by uh, one to another uh, that you would be able to see them like really pretty moons on your sky. And that makes it really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds like quite a sight that uh, maybe one day in the very, very far future, our great, 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 great grandchildren may or may not get to experience. But uh, but so looking at that with data collection, right, understanding more about the system, you've mentioned there's a series of telescopes and other things that 
are being utilized in order to study more about this. Is there other ways that data collection is going to, going to occur to learn more about these systems besides the use of telescopes? Telescopes are, because these planets are so far away from us, uh, the only information we can get from them is the light they are either emitting themselves or they're reflecting or uh, say in the case of the TRAPPIST-1 system, they're blocking from their parent star. Uh, so telescopes are really uh, the only way we can get any information on the systems. In terms of its discovery, right, the system, as we've, we've kind of talked about throughout the episode, is extremely far away. What does TRAPPIST discovery mean for science and what benefit do we gain from studying more about this star system? Uh, so I think generally finding more planets out there uh, was quite a breakthrough for science. Uh, if you think of the fact that for thousands of years, we just knew about our own little neighborhood here in the solar system. And actually for most of these past thousand years, we even didn't know all of our neighbors. Some of the gaseous planets or even Pluto were discovered pretty recently, actually, even though Pluto is not a planet anymore. Uh, but still in our neighborhood, right? And uh, we were just using kind of these planets to try to figure out uh, how the planets came to be, uh, why is Earth as it is um, with liquid water and life while Venus is scorching hot uh, and Mars is pretty much a desolated desert by now. And um, by finding other planets out there, we actually started having more examples of how planets can be and how some of the properties depend on their parent star. And we started getting a better understanding of how our solar system came to be and why we are here. Uh, so a system like the TRAPPIST-1, for example, being a multiple planet system with seven planets, uh, can give us some comparison to our own solar system, uh, even though it's in such a different scale that our system is uh, right now. Um, also, TRAPPIST, I think, is really interesting uh, because it can offer us an opportunity to potentially have another planet out there that can host um, water on the surface um, and uh, even maybe life, even though that's a really big discussion of uh, how do we figure out what life um, signatures are? And uh, so far in our whole solar system, the Earth is the only planet that has liquid water on the surface. Uh, we do have some moons further out around Saturn and Jupiter that have liquid oceans underneath, uh, thick ice surfaces. Uh, we even have a really intriguing moon with lakes of methane. Uh, but there's nothing else like the Earth with liquid water on the surface and the perfect place for life to thrive. Uh, so I think by studying a model like the TRAPPIST system, uh, we just get a bit closer to trying to figure out if we're really so special here on Earth uh, and eventually try to answer the big question that we're all after, that are we alone in the universe? That was Are We There Yet's Kirk Churchill speaking with UCF's Dr. Theodore Carlidi. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to this show's podcast feed and never miss an episode. Do that on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. Our intern is Kirk Churchill, and our director of content is Steve Yasko. 
Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. You can make a financial contribution to this show by visiting WMFE.org or call 1-800-785-2020. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.